Welcome, I'm Anastasia Glova bringing you the Cato Daily Podcast. Full and edited versions of our podcasts are available on our website at www.cato.org. In Leading the Way, How U.S. Trade Policy Can Overcome Doha's Failings, Associate Director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies, Daniel Eikenson, argues that increased trade does not require new trade agreements. Instead of bargaining and dodging obstacles to achieve a multilateral trade agreement, the U.S. should pursue a policy of unilateral trade liberalization. Why is the United States Trade Representative focusing on achieving multilateral trade liberalization if, as you write, reducing one's own barriers is beneficial regardless of whether others open as well? Well, to give a flippant answer, without negotiations, U.S. trade negotiators would be looking for a new line of work. But, you know, to probe more deeply, though, the, the multilateral path to trade liberalization has strong precedents. Most of the tariff reduction and other trade liberalization that has occurred in the United States during the post-World War II period has been pursuant to reciprocal agreements achieved through multilateral negotiations. But there are also powerful political constraints. Congress is generally of the mind that our trade barriers are assets. And if we're going to dispense with our assets, we should get something in return, like improved market access abroad. Economists of all stripes agree that there is a positive correlation between trade liberalization and economic growth. Countries that are more open to trade grow faster than those that are not. But since trade liberalization is a positive good, the more countries that adopt liberal trade policies, the better. Economic benefits can be much greater if liberalization is mutual. But that does not mean it should be all or nothing, that we should either achieve consensus to liberalize or not liberalize at all. There is a very strong case to be made that unilateral liberalization is a viable alternative, and in fact a preferable alternative if multilateral negotiators cannot produce an ambitious agreement. Economic studies show that most of the gains from trade come from opening one's own market and not from the reduction in foreign market barriers. Greater access of imports to your own economy inspires competition and innovation. It helps to reduce the cost of production for U.S. firms that rely on imported raw materials like oil, uh, iron ore, steel, sugar, uh, and it enables them to compete more effectively in the U.S. and in foreign markets. And it props up real wages and extends family budgets so that consumers here can spend more on American-made or foreign-made products, or they can start to save more. In effect, a byproduct of this process is that you can actually achieve improved access to foreign markets. By allowing foreigners better access to the U.S. market, they earn more exchange. U.S. producers can then sell more competitively because of their lower production costs. They can sell more competitively to foreigners with greater income. And it's quite possible that the leadership demonstrated by liberalizing unilaterally could inspire what Jagdish Bhagwati calls sequential reciprocity. Other countries might be inspired to mimic the successful policies of the United States. Incidentally, most trade liberalization over the past quarter century has been achieved unilaterally, about two-thirds. The remaining third has been achieved pursuant to multilateral or regional trade agreements. If the U.S. drops its trade barriers, imports will likely surge. So why are politicians so stuck on the false premise that imports are somehow bad? Well, the politics of trade is mercantilist. Exports are good, imports are bad, and the trade balance keeps score. Uh, because we have a large and growing trade deficit, the view is that we are somehow losing a trade. And the reason that we are losing is because our trade partners are cheating. And politicians tend to hear more frequently and with greater volume from import-competing industries that vilify imports and seek protection than they hear from consumers and, and exporters. It is often politically convenient to blame domestic woes on foreigners, but the fact is that U.S. businesses rely heavily on imports, and there is a strong correlation between manufactured imports and U.S. manufacturing output, as my colleague Dan Griswold has articulated in several papers. In periods when imports rise, output rises. When imports fall, output falls. So if politicians want to see imports tail off significantly, all we would really need to do is have a major recession in the United States. That might temporarily solve the quote-unquote problem of imports. 
The average applied tariff rate is only 1.4%. So the U.S. isn't even the worst offender. Yes,、uh, the average applied tariff is 1.4%, and nearly 70% of all imports enter the United States duty free. At least that was the case in 2005. But I think that number is misleading. Products subject to zero or low tariffs are necessarily imported more, and higher tariff items are imported less, and that tends to skew the average. Besides,、uh, our barriers go beyond tariffs. There are tariff rate quotas, there are voluntary export restraints,、uh, agricultural subsidy programs, buy American provisions, anti dumping measures, anti subsidy measures. Rules of origin provisions and other non tariff barriers that keep imports out of the US economy. You've explained how protectionism hurts business, but can you also talk about how it hurts American consumers, particularly those in the lower income brackets? The burden of our remaining protectionist barriers, I think, falls hardest on, on lower income Americans.、Uh, while you mentioned the average tariff is 1.4%, it is much higher on necessities like food and clothing and shoes. These are products to which lower income Americans devote higher proportions of their own budgets. And incidentally, those are precisely the products that poorer countries are more likely to produce and export. So America's tariff policy is, is regressive in that sense. You know, it distinctly penalizes the world's least well to do, lower income Americans and producers in developing countries. Incidentally, the average tariff imposed on imports from France in 2005 was 1.1%, and nearly 70% of French imports entered duty free. By comparison, Cambodia's average rate of duty was 16%, and only 2% of its imports entered the United States duty free. What do you say to those that are going to lose their jobs as a result of liberalization? Well, jobs lost to import competition are estimated to be quite small relative to other reasons for job loss. Many more jobs are lost because of productivity gains. We no longer need 10 men on the assembly line to produce the widget. Because of productivity gains, we can achieve the same output with far fewer workers, or much, much more output with the same number of workers. Others lose jobs because of domestic competition, you know, changing consumer tastes, corporate malfeasance, and other reasons. Are those who lose jobs to import competition to be treated differently? I, I don't think so. This has been Cato Daily Podcast. Thank you for listening.